All right, survey time. Ready for a survey? Come on, 11 o'clock. You slept in. <laughs> survey time. Ready for a survey? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Who here is good at keeping your mouth shut when it's obvious that that's what you should do? Who here is good at keeping your mouth shut when it's obvious? Not you, Nathan. I've been in staff meetings with you, for sure. <clears throat> Who here is good at keeping your mouth shut when you, when you know that's what you should do? Nobody wants to put their hand up, like just a few people. Interesting that you would think that about yourself. Um, the, the, like the Bible knows how tough this is, though. Like anything related to our words, our mouth, our speech. The Bible knows how tough this is because we are encouraged with this proverb, Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Don't you love that? When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And I feel like some of you are already thinking, I should print that off and put it on the fridge this week, right? Like, I need my kids to see this, or I know some of you wives, I know what you're thinking. Maybe my husband will see this if I put it on the fridge. And I can assure you, he will not. So, <laughs> so, so, so in today's passage, this relates to the passage in today's passage, some Christians were opposing what God was doing, a very evident move of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see. And they, and they fell silent, verse 18 will tell us, they fell silent when Peter told the story, shared everything that God was doing. They fell, fell silent, they kept their mouth shut, and they didn't say anything more about it lest they be opposing God. And that's the challenge that we're going to see as we read the narrative today to see how we ought to push through hesitations and opposition and arguments that we have concerning the work of God and, and learn how to appropriately respond when we see the Holy Spirit evidently at work. And so we are resuming our series in the book of Acts today, and we're in chapter 11, as Nathan said it's been two years since we've heard a message in the book of Acts. We took a two-year little break. We inserted a little series on the book of Revelation uh, in that period of time, uh, but we're um, excited to be back into uh, the series now. If you are one of those really ambitious people, um, our sermon archive has 27 messages in Acts 1 to 10 uh, that you can go back and listen to, and I know you're all going to do that before next Sunday, so um, those are there for you if you wish. So let's turn our attention to the scriptures, Acts chapter 11, thinking about uh, what, uh, what we see, how we respond when God is at work, Acts 11, 1 to 18. You follow along in your Bible. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. And looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice entered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. 
This happened three times and, and all was drawn up again to heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, uh, sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your, all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads uh, to life. Amen? The word of God. Well, when God is at work, how am I going to respond to that? That's what we're looking at in this message. What will my response be? Uh, I will, first of all, look at this in your notes, uh, expect the unexpected. When God is at work, I should expect the unexpected to happen. Now, in chapter 11, the, the passage I just read, Peter's giving a report on the events that happened in chapter 10. He's now in Jerusalem. He was in Joppa. He went to Caesarea. The whole thing happens. Then he heads off to Jerusalem to give a report to the church there of what had just happened. It's a, it's a briefing of the more detailed account that we saw two years ago when we uh, last looked at Acts in chapter 10. Now, consider it at, to this point, when you, when you think about the book of Acts, if you know the book of Acts, um, think about everything that's happened up to this point, up to this particular incident. And, and you might even, you know, flip through your Bible in the next day or so and, and, and remind yourself again of all the things that had happened. Because they had experienced time and time again, over and over again, they had experienced the unexpected. God surprising them at almost every turn throughout the book of Acts. But in this incident now with Peter, Peter is a Jewish man, born a Jewish man. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's, he's believed in his Messiah. So he's a Jewish Christian apostle. And Cornelius, this Gentile, non-Jewish, Roman soldier. And these two men brought together. And this story of the two of them coming together, it shook the church. It shook the church in Jerusalem and the leaders in Jerusalem it caught them by surprise because what was happening at this very moment was this theory that they had that the gospel should go to the end of the earth, this theory that they had that a Gentile could actually become a Christian was now becoming a reality and they had to deal with it. They didn't know what to do with it. And they needed to hear from Peter. So verse one tells us, they heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And, and a portion of the church was this group within the church called the Circumcision Party. So these are Jewish Christians. They've embraced Jesus as their Messiah, but they're staying very attached to the principles of Judaism. They're still practicing everything in the Jewish faith and adding on to it everything in the Christian faith. So Jewish Christians still committed to Jews, Judaism and the fledgling church having them as part of the church and they believed 
that you needed to become, if a Gentile genuinely wanted to become a Christian, they needed to do that by way of Judaism. In other words, you had to become a Jew first, and then you could become a Christian. Or, to say it more simply, because they were called the circumcision party, which was the sign and seal of their covenant, was this act of circumcision. What they were really believing was, you had to be circumcised before you could be baptized. Now, I want to say, that's, that's going to slow church growth. Don't you think? That's going to make it a lot harder to, to lead someone to Jesus if you're saying to them, but you need to do it by way of becoming a Jew first. And hopefully, they're not circumcising them and baptizing them on the first day. I just want to say, logistically, that's tough. So these Jewish Christians, with this in mind, they go after Peter for what they say, verse three, notice this, for, for eating with uncircumcised men. They went to their house, they went to the house of these Gentiles, and they had a meal with them. And to be fair, Peter himself struggled to grasp how God was going to work among the Gentiles, even though he was an apostle, even though he had walked with Jesus and heard directly from him, he struggled with this. And the irony about all of this is there's clues throughout the scripture that this is exactly the way it was going to go. Throughout the Old Testament and into the Gospels, Jesus hinting, the prophets hinting, uh, God telling us through the scriptures that eventually this message was actually going to go out to the entire world. Peter's struggling with it, though. This idea that even Gentiles would come to faith in God, they would come to faith in Jesus Christ by the same means that it would come by faith, through grace, through the grace of God, not through adherence to the Mosaic law. In fact, no one had ever been saved by adherence to the Mosaic law. It had always only been by faith. You can, in fact, go all the way back to 2,000 years prior to this incident, which is 2,000 years before us. For us, you can go back 4,000 years to Abraham and a covenant that God made with Abraham where he said to Abraham, through you, all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jewish people, but the entire world is going to be blessed by this covenant that I'm making with you right now and by uh, the, the, the descendants that are going to come from Abraham. And you can read about that in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where that covenant is articulated with Abraham. And that is, so what we see here happening with Cornelius this shouldn't have been a surprise to them. I'm telling you that to say that. It shouldn't have been a surprise to them that a Gentile would be able to come to faith in God, and yet it was. And in fact, not only was it a surprise to them, but it was upsetting to them, particularly to this group of Judaistic Christians. They were upset about it. And, and there's a principle, even like a little nugget in here, where any time anytime you try to bring change, people get upset about it. You know, like there's a lot of churches, not this church, other churches, where you try to bring change and people get upset about it. You know what I'm talking about? We don't like change. These Christians in Jerusalem, they didn't even want change, and they were barely a few years past the resurrection, and already they were all entrenched in their traditions. So Peter very patiently, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't like get right up all in their grill at this point. He just patiently begins to explain it all. Verse four, Peter explained it to them in order. He took his time to go through the whole story. 
And he said to them, here's what he said, verse five, you can follow along here. I'm gonna go through this quickly. He was praying. And while he was praying, he saw a vision. This big sheet is coming down by the four corners uh, in front of him. And, and inside of the sheet are all these different kinds of animals that, that the Mosaic law prohibited Jews from eating. So they're all the unclean animals. So as a, just by way of sample, some of my favorites, lobster, shrimp, bacon, pork chops, so that kind of thing. That's what Peter's seeing in, in the sheet. And then he hears a voice saying to him, these are all things that Jews couldn't eat. He hears a voice saying to him, verse seven, obviously the voice of God saying, go ahead and eat. Go ahead and eat the shrimp, the lobster, the bacon, the pork chops, go ahead and eat it. I will confess, by, by the way, just like pause for a second and say, this is a very difficult message for vegans and veg vegetarians today. The kind of message where carnivores throughout the entire message are like, amen, brother, amen, amen. So a hard message, I get it. Peter responds, God says, go ahead and eat. Peter responds, verse eight, no, can't do it, Lord. Never eaten bacon, not gonna start now. That's a paraphrase. Verse nine, God explains further that the old rules are out. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish the law, he said. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. He fulfilled them. And in essence, God says to Peter, again, this is a, a paraphrase. In essence, God says, next time you're at Wendy's, get the Baconator. That's what he's saying to him. You're free from the law. Now, typical of Peter, I mean, you would only need to say to me once, go ahead and have bacon. But Peter needed it said to him three times because Peter was always a bit thick whenever the Lord was telling him stuff. So three times, it, verse 10 tells us, three tries for him to get it, to hear the voice of God and to understand what God was actually saying to him here. Verse 11, the vision is done. And then all of a sudden, at the door, as soon as the vision's done. And it's these, these guys from Cornelius who's in Caesarea and he sent them down to Joppa to get Peter because he had an angel show up in his living room and tell him, you need to go and get this guy Peter and bring him up. Verse 12, the spirit told Peter to go with them and that he was to be done. The word here is to be done with any distinction between Jew and Gentile. Do not call unclean or common what I have called clean. You can go and meet with this Gentile and have a meal with him. Because as Paul would later say in Ephesians 2.14, I've torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And there's multiple applications for what that means. But one of those applications of the dividing wall of hostility is the wall that existed between Jew and Gentile. God's saying that wall's gone. And so Peter went with him and he took six brothers along with him, six fellow Christians, because he wanted them to see everything, witness everything. He kind of knew, I'm probably gonna have to go to Jerusalem and give an account for this. I want some other people to have seen it. So he takes some guys with him to see the whole thing. They entered this Gentile's house. No big deal for us. We go into somebody's house. Big deal for a Jew to go into the house of a Gentile. And Cornelius told his side of things in verse 13. He said how he had seen the angel send to Joppa, bring Peter, so that you can hear, verse 14, a message by which you will be saved, which he explained. If you just look back, if your Bible's open, just look back at chapter 10 
and, and look at verses 39 to 41. And this is where Peter was preaching to him. This is what Peter was sharing. And he said, we are witnesses of all that Jesus did. This is the gospel he's, gonna, he's telling them. Okay, we are witnesses of all that Jesus did. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, crucifixion, but God raised him on the third day, resurrection, and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as his witnesses. And then he told the Gentiles, this is the really good news, because that's the story of how the gospel happened. But now, who does this apply to? Is it just a Jewish thing? And Peter made it very clear in 1043. He said that everyone, not just Jews, but everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The gospel's for everyone, just as God had said to Abraham. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Through the seed of Abraham, and Jesus comes through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, through you, Abraham, and your son, all the families of the earth will be blessed, not through circumcision, but by faith. And sure enough, as he spoke, back to chapter 11, verse 15, as he spoke, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, Peter said. And when he refers to at the beginning, he's, he's talking about Pentecost. At that moment when Jesus ascended to heaven and he said, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came and descended on them in Acts chapter two. Now, what's important, and theologians would have us understand what's actually going on here, but when the Holy Spirit came to Cornelius, this is, this is what scholars call the Gentile Pentecost. And in the book of Acts, we actually see three Pentecosts happen. And let me, just, let me just throw these up on the screen for you. The three Pentecosts in the book of Acts, the first one is what Peter's referring to when he said, when, when it happened to us at the beginning. This is uh, chapter two, verse four. On the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast day, the Christians were gathered and the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and that was the Jewish Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came, so to speak, to the believers who were in Jerusalem and Judea, the Jewish areas. And then we have secondly, and we looked at this previously in the series in chapter eight, verse 14, we have the Samaritan Pentecost. And the Jews could kind of get their heads around Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus. The Jewish Christians could because, because the Samaritans were, were, were half Jewish, kind of the remnant of the Northern kingdom. They had kind of mixed with other people, but they were still considered a, a partly Jewish people. And so there was still some idea, yeah, Samaritans could certainly come to Jesus. The Holy Spirit came in a special way in Samaria so that they understood that the Holy Spirit had come to them. And then in chapter 1044, which we just looked at, this is the Gentile Pentecost, when a Gentile finally came to faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit came to this Gentile, Cornelius. Now, in these three Pentecosts, notice a few observations here. The first um, observation is this. It, it follows God's missional plan. And the missional plan was laid out in chapter one, verse eight. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that's what we've now seen. The Holy Spirit has gone to each of these areas. The initial Pentecost, Jerusalem, Judea, the second Pentecost of Samaria, and the third Pentecost uh, to the Gentile nations. And so Acts 1-8 really serves as like a table of contents for the book of Acts, but also an outline of the missional plan of God to move the Holy Spirit into each of these different people groups. 
And that, that's the second observation. So it follows the mission outline. Second observation, it represents the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to each of these people groups around the world. And then thirdly, by way of observation, what's really cool about this is the apostle Peter was present at all three. So it gave it that apostolic authority so that people would understand this was a special move of God to pour out the Holy Spirit. And, and, and each time, each, in each one of these cases, what's very interesting to us is that it came as a surprise to, to the people who were involved. They were shocked by it. It was unexpected. Even though in hindsight, they could look back and say, this is what God had always planned to do and actually had told us was going to happen. Now, in order to get what God is saying here, because it's so interesting to kind of learn all of that and just pack our heads with knowledge about this chapter of Scripture and this particular incident. But if we're going to take these Scriptures and not just fill our heads with knowledge and actually live this out, we need to be asking the question, how does this apply to me? Like, why is this relevant for us today? So the best thing for us to do right now is to put ourselves into the story. And we have a couple of choices here. We could put ourselves into the story as Cornelius, the one receiving the gospel. I'm so thankful that God saved me. We could put ourselves into the place of Peter, who's in this place of leadership, who's proclaiming the gospel. Or we can put ourselves into the place of these Judaistic Christians, these Jewish Christians who are all tied up in the law. And I'm gonna tell you right now, the most helpful place for us to land is that third category, to ask ourselves some really hard questions about how we respond when God does something different something unexpected. Because the aim here would be this. We put ourselves in the place of these Jewish Christians because they're, ex they're struggling with accepting people into the church, struggling to accept people who are different. And the aim that we should have is to root out any evangelistic prejudice that we have. Because I'm telling you right now, we have evangelistic prejudice. So let's ask ourselves the hard questions. Paul would, would, would later, by the way, carefully articulate this, this theology of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the book of Romans and Galatians in particular. And, and we can see how the mission of, of Acts 1-8 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, we, we could see already, and we've touched on this, it will not be effective if we have evangelistic prejudice. It will not be effective if 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 it's, you have to become a Jew first and then, and then receive Jesus as your Messiah because it becomes a double conversion and it's a complete and unhelpful encumbrance to the gospel. And that's why it's important to us. So it's not a first century problem. You could, you could read this and go, this is a first century problem. They were having trouble accepting Gentiles. Clearly they got over it because unless there's some Jewish person in the room, this is a room full of Gentiles. We're all Gentiles. And so we can look back and go, you know what? It worked. The church embraced Gentiles, nine o'clock too, full of Gentiles who accepted the gospel of Jesus. So we could say it's not our, this isn't our issue. Except that it speaks beyond the fact that they were Gentiles it actually speaks to the, the value of each human being. That's, that's what's really behind these Jewish Christians and their prejudice. Jews, Jews considered, in the first century, Jews considered Gentiles to be dogs. 
And I get there's a lot of dog owners here and y'all love your dogs. I get that. I'm not a dog person. It's not that I hate your dog. It's just that I don't want to pick up poo. So it's, that's why I don't like dogs. Um, I don't want to have a dog. But anyways, we're not talking about your dog. We're not talking about pets. We're not talking about your, your fur friend, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're to, in, in the first century, dogs weren't kept as pets. They, they were like, they, they were these uh, street dogs. They were, they were wild. They, they're mongrels. They were, they're eating garbage. They're fighting with each other. They carry disease. They're a terrible, terrible animal. They're not what, what you're thinking. And so, but Jews considered in the culture Gentiles to be dogs. So you can imagine how that puts a distance between you and another people group when that's in your mind. That's, that's, what, that's what you think about the person. It's a deeply derogatory slur. But the challenge is we can rank people in the very same way. We, we wouldn't use that kind of language, but, but we, can, we can rank people into how savable we think they are. Who's, who's worthy of our evangelistic effort? Who, who's, who, who merits our love, our sacrifice, our time, our prayers, our service? Even if we decide in our minds that anyone can be saved, even if we get to that place, you know, anybody can be saved, but then we want to run them through some kind of cleansing process before we can include them in the community of faith. And so then we, we step back and we find we're actually kind of like those first century Jewish Christians who are struggling with inclusion and acceptance. God's intention has always been to include Gentiles in the offer of the gospel and the opportunity to hear the life-giving gospel, to have an opportunity to repent of their sins and, and, and to be brought into the family of God and told that they belong. He sent us to the end of the earth to make sure that they would actually hear that gospel. So let's really get into it. Let's, let's really challenge ourselves here this morning. Because we want to make this as helpful as, as it can be. So let's remember that every human being we meet, every single one of them is an image bearer of God. Amen? Every single human being you meet is an image bearer of God. An individual whom God loves an individual for whom Christ died, an individual to whom the gospel, the offer of the gospel is given. So, when you have someone in your life, someone that you see, someone you know, or even if you don't, struggling with gender identity or struggling with their sexuality, you need to forget the culture war that you are so intent on fighting and you need to see them as the image of God in need of love and redemption. Drop the culture war. Preach the gospel. And while you cry for justice for Israel because of the ruthless terrorist attacks on civilians in the, in the current conflict, are you also crying for Palestinians and Israelis as those who are in need of Christ above all things? Or are you so biased one way over the other? I'm telling you, Christian, we need to be less geopolitical and more gospel. 
That ought to be our priority. Less interest, less concern for the geopolitical, and far more concern that people would hear the gospel and find life in Jesus Christ. And there are people on both sides of every border in every conflict who need Jesus. When the homeless drug addict crosses our parking lot, do you look at them with compassion and with love and concern in your heart? Do you see them as lost sheep in need of a shepherd, or have you written them off? The gospel is for everyone. James wrote, James 2, 1, my brothers, show no partiality, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As difficult or impossible as these conversions might seem to us, we must expect the unexpected from our God as he works. We need to look for God to do the extraordinary in our midst. We need to see him do the surprising. We, we need to assume that God will push us that God will push you and I out of our comfort zones. We need to assume that God will challenge our assumptions about how church ought to be. And, and I'll add this, and, and by the way, I know I'm still in the first point. For those of you taking notes going, you didn't leave enough room. I get it. I know I'm still in the first point. We're almost done it. But if if and I want to say this too, by the way, if you're, if you're new here and, and you're just exploring Christianity or you're checking out this church, I, I get it, and this next part is not for you. This is for people who are rooted here, who are members, who are regular attendees, who are serving, and you say, like, Harvest is my church home. This part is for, is for that um, group. I just need to say to you that in light of this, to expect the unexpected, I, I want to say that I have zero interest in, in being part of a cozy little church club that's content to ride out the years until Jesus comes back. I have no interest in that. There are not too many years, as I, re I, re I reflect on my own time here at Harvest, there's not too many years before, uh, the Lord willing, I'm gonna retire out of my role as lead pastor, and I have no intention whatsoever of cruising to the end of my time here. No intention. Now, having said that, if you're not interested in being pushed, if you're not interested in discomfort, if you're not interested in sacrifice, in service, if you're not interested in reaching the lost, if you're not interested in change, then may I suggest kindly, as, as graciously and kindly as I can put it, go somewhere else, find a different church, and free up the seat that you're sitting in for someone who wants to be on this mission. Because there's lots of churches in town that are just nice, little, cozy Christian clubs. And they'd be happy to welcome you to join what they're doing or not doing. We're intent on reaching the Gentiles of our day and being stretched to do so. We want to see God do the unexpected. Amen? And thus ends the first point. And you may rejoice in the fact that the second point is not as long. Secondly, this. You and I are going to look to his word. We're going to look to his word. We're going to look to his word to discern when God is at work. So this isn't like something arbitrary. It's not based on my experience 
of, oh, God worked in the past, and I see him working now, and that seems to be like the thing that he's doing, or it's not based on my feelings. I just really feel like, like this is God's in it. P Peter doesn't even do that. P Peter's had this incredible experience of, of this vision that's given to him three times. I'd be happy to get one vision from God, wouldn't you? Peter gets it three times, and then he hears the voice of God. I would love to get that. Peter gets all of that, but then listen, Peter doesn't base his decision or the story he's telling on his experience or on his feelings about his experience. It's not arbitrary. It's not based on opinions. Peter says, verse 16, after telling this whole story, he says, I remembered the word of the Lord. He goes back to scripture. Now, not, of, not at this point, when Peter's saying it, it's not a written portion of Scripture because the New Testament did not yet exist. The Old Testament existed with all the prophecies that pointed forward. But Peter's appealing to the actual words spoken by Jesus. He's quoting Jesus. And Luke, who's the author of Luke-Acts, Acts is volume two of Luke's work. Luke here would be inspired by the Holy Spirit to include this Jesus quote that Peter is making, to include it in the early part of Acts in chapter one, verse five. So it is scripture inspired by God to be put in the written scriptures. And so what does he say? He's, Peter's quoting Jesus and what Jesus said was, John baptized, you see this in verse 16, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, we're talking about John's baptism. This is John the Baptist. This is the baptism that Jesus uh, went through. John's baptism was not Christian baptism as we practice it because it was a baptism that happened pre-resurrection, pre-church. So it's a different baptism. It was, in fact, a baptism of repentance. Luke says in uh, uh, chapter three, verse four, uh, to prepare the way of the Lord. And that's a quote out of Isaiah 40, uh, verses three to five, so fulfillment of, of prophecy. So that's a different baptism. It was to prep the people for the coming of Jesus for his uh, earthly ministry. And the baptism that Jesus is talking about, you're not gonna be baptized um, in this way, but you're gonna be baptized by the Holy Spirit. We're not even talking about water baptism the way we practice it. And we are told to practice that, but we're talking here about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit, as we saw in those three Pentecosts, and the coming of the Holy Spirit in our life, at the moment that we're converted, we receive the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a temptation for us, having said all of this, because Peter's rooting his argument in the word of, of Jesus, in the word of God. There's a temptation by some Christians in some corners of the church to look not to the word, but to the Holy Spirit for guidance. And, he, and here's what I want to say about that. It's never one or the other. It's always both for the Christian. And in fact, the Holy Spirit inspired this book. We're gonna see that in a moment. The Holy Spirit inspired this book. So when we say, I need to hear from the Holy Spirit, you're gonna say, he wrote a book, you should read it. We don't need to go looking for a new word, a different word from the Spirit, because we have the word of God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't look to the Spirit to tell us something that the Word has not already communicated. 
In fact, commentator Eckhart Schnabel said this, and this is where you see like in this quote how it all kind of comes together in one package. He said, salvation is given by God. It comes through listening to the message about Jesus. It involves the reception of the Holy Spirit and baptism. And you have it all there. You have Christ, you have salvation, you have the word of God, you have the Holy Spirit, you have baptism all coming together in this grand act that God is performing, all of which is spoken of in the scriptures. So we believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures, and evidently Peter did too. This is what he wrote in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He said, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Guys weren't just making this stuff up. Because no prophecy ever came from, by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So every author of the scriptures and every book that we have here were carried along, those authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us the Holy Scriptures. The Apostle Paul backed that up. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God, breathed out by God, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Everything you need in life, it's all right here, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, this is a challenge. This is a challenge for some people, I know, because you're, we're so given. I don't want to read the Bible. I just want to hear from the Spirit, and the Spirit wrote to us. And this is where we discern the Holy Spirit's word. But I will give you, I will give you one scenario whereby you may say, I can seek a different word from the Holy Spirit, something he hasn't said in the scriptures. I will give you the scenario by which you may do that. Ready? When you have exhausted all that the Holy Scriptures, the inspired word of God, have delivered to you, when you have obeyed every command, when you have repented of every sin, when you are holy, even as he is holy, when you are saturated with the scriptures, so saturated with the scriptures that it oozes out of every word you say and is reflected in every attitude you ever show, then, and only then, you may look to the Holy Spirit to give you extra revelation and a new word. Did you write that down? Now, here's the thing. We've seen this modeled by so many people, this, this, this comfort that's found in the word of God and how the Holy Spirit has worked through that in people's lives. We've seen this modeled, and I, I wanna tell you just one story. So many faithful believers, I could, have, I could have told you their story, but many of you will know the story of Elizabeth Elliot and her husband, Jim. In the 1950s, uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot uh, went to, uh, with four other couples, they went to be missionaries to the Waudani tribe in the Amazon jungle of Ecuador. Some of you know them as the Alca Indians. And in 1956, shortly after arriving on station there, uh, they made first contact with the Waodani people and they delivered gifts to the tribe and the contact seemed to have gone uh, very well. Uh, and then uh, later, um, it really just in a matter of hours, her husband and the four other men when they were back at their base camp were speared to death by the tribesmen. Elizabeth was now a widow and they had a young daughter, daughter Valerie, and she would later write this, the only thing that keeps me stable and settled in these days of uncertainty is the absolute dependability of God's word. 
in the midst of her own trial and, and pain and suffering, she looked to the, to the word of God. And here's what's really remarkable about that and how you really know that Elizabeth Elliot believed what she was reading in the scriptures and how the Holy Spirit worked in her life. This is how you know. Because remarkably, she and her young daughter, Valerie, returned to that tribe almost immediately. And within four years, many members of the Waodani people had become followers of Jesus Christ, including the man who speared her husband. And she survived the devastating loss. And beyond surviving it, she returned full of faith to carry out the mission that she and Jim had set out to do. She looked to the word of God. And, and to come back to that first point again, Jim's death was unexpected. But there's not a single person I know who knows the story of, of Elizabeth Elliot who would say that it was anything other than God's will to do it the way he did it. The unexpected led to a, a beautiful move of God's Holy Spirit to save many. Elizabeth Elliot went to the word of God and she saw how God could use that pain. Now listen, as, as Peter processed the vision and the circumstances that pushed him hard out of his own comfort zone, he concluded that as he saw God at work, he had to stay out of the way. And that's, that's what we see next. He, he had to stay out of the way. He testified in, in verse 17. I mean, it's so easy for us to get in the way of what God is doing. But he testifies if then God gave the same gift to them, the gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I'm telling you that last part. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? I feel like we need to put that on t-shirts. Let's make memes. Let's put it on Facebook. Let's do short reels on TikTok. Like, let's get the word out of there, out there, that we're not going to stand in the way of God. Who am I? You ask the question of yourself. Who am I to stand in God's way if he wants to work in a way that I wasn't thinking he should work? Who am I? We know what it means? To oppose God, to prevent him from doing something because you think you know a better way, to hinder God in some way. That's what the word means. We want to stay out of God's way. And that begs the question, how do I get in God's way? How do you get in God's way? How do I get in, a, in God's way? I surveyed the staff on Friday. I was working through this, and I just like, sent a, a text to the staff group, and I said, give me some ideas. And, and this is what we came up with. So the top eight ways, top eight ways I get in the way of God you want to hear these? Okay, good. Um, number one, unrepentant sin, disobedience, living my life my own way, just in rebellion against God. And if that's true, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, I'd refer you back again to Lee's message from last week. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, you're, you're standing in the way of God working through you and in you and in your family and among your friends and your neighbors who need Jesus. Number two, theological bias. Like what I believe, like I've locked down my doctrinal statement. I know what I believe. I'm not going to change that. And what I believe is more important than what God has said in his word. Because not everything we believe is actually backed up by what's in his word. Here's a third one, entrenched tradition. 
how I observe my faith. Like I'm locked in to a certain way of, of living out my faith and worshiping him and serving him. And, and that way that I'm comfortable with trumps whatever God wants to do. So I resist change. I, I'm all about my personal approach to religion. And if that's true for you, you're standing in God's way. Here's a fourth one, complacency and comfort. This is like, I don't really care because what I really want is a life of ease. And I don't want any complexity. I don't want anything to upset the way I'm living my life. Certainly don't want God to upset my comfort. Number five, incompatible plans. I'm, I'm good with God. Like I'm good with God as long as he's good with my plans for me right? I'm not, I'm not especially excited about his, his plans for me, unless those match up with my, my preconceived notions about what those plans should be and how they should turn out. I want God to meet my expectations. You could put it that way. Um, and, and if that's true, then you're standing in God's way. Here's a sixth one. I, thinking I know better. It, it, it's okay to question God. We see that in the scriptures. There's a way to question God that's respectful. God's not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of questions. But there isn't an inappropriate way of questioning him, and that's by uh, somehow um, thinking that you're more intelligent than him, that somehow you've got things figured out a little better than God does. And of course, that's on its face just dumb. Number seven, uh, doubt or lack of faith. I just get to the place where I, 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 I don't believe that God can save anyone or should. I don't believe that God works in a certain way today. And um, certainly I, I would be careful about ever putting God in a box of any kind, not having enough faith to believe that he can do whatever he pleases. And then number eight, uh, just being a control freak. You know, some, some, of, um, some of you in this room, certainly not me, I would never confess that. Um, I don't see myself as a control freak, especially as long as y'all do exactly what I tell you to do. Um, but I won't, surrender, I won't surrender to his will and his ways. And, and any of these, any of these are going to be standing in the way of God. And we need to repent of these things and be, and be done with them if we're going to really see God work in this extraordinary way that we hope he does. And so here it is. Peter's made his case. He's told his story. He's confessed his own response to it here at the end. I don't want to be in God's way in any way. And then the challenge now is with these these, these members of the circumcision group, these Jewish Christians who are really attached to the Mosaic law, even though they're Christians, and how are they gonna respond? And in verse 18, when they, when these Jewish Christians who had fronted Peter over their naive assertion that converts needed to become Jews first, before they could become Christians, when they heard these things, they fell silent. They zipped their lips, they shut their mouth. They dropped their objections. They weren't pushing back anymore. And even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. And they knew. They too needed to stay out of God's way. And in fact, the appropriate response then out of this, and this is the last point, and, and very quickly, is that by doing so, they glorified God. We, we need to bring God the glory, give him the glory. I often pray on Sundays, 
God, I want you to do, this is my prayer for most Sundays, God, I want you to do the unexplainable. I, I, want, I want things to happen at 7 George Street that none of us can take credit for. I, I, I want, God, you to do things that, that even though in, in all the wisdom and the planning of the staff and, and all of the vision casting and prayer of the elders, in, in, the, in, the, in the tireless and beautiful work of all the servant volunteers who have spread out around this building today and done so much to bring the ministry about that not one of us, not one of us could take any credit for the thing that's happened here today because God moved in a miraculous way. He manifested his presence and we saw his power and he did something that's beyond any human being. That's what I want every Sunday. That's the thing that's gonna give him the glory because when that, brings, when, when that happens, we are revealed to be jars of clay, as, as Paul said to the Corinthians. We are jars, of, we're just weak vessels. And when we confess our weakness, then the surpassing glory belongs to God, Paul said. Verse 18, partway through, they glorified God saying, having heard Peter, they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We need to see it his way. We need to go with his plan. We, we glorify God when we expect the unexpected. We glorify God when we look only to his word, not our feelings, not our experiences. We glorify God when we stay out of his way as we serve him in this incredible and glorious mission that he has given to us to tell the world, to tell a world that's desperate to know that Jesus saves. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, there um, is little doubt that there is a word here for every person in the room, every person watching on the live stream. And I pray, God, that you would work in a way that surprises us, each one of us, to bring each individual to a place of understanding these scriptures and recommitting their lives to this kind of service, to be fully surrendered to you, to see the thing that you want to do in our midst, to give you the glory alone for all of these things. So thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us in the scriptures. Help us to receive these things now. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.